right in your eyes. I see her a bunch of trashy daydreams. Hello and good evening. Welcome to Wake Island. Today on the show we have an author and playwright, Logan Berry, who recently wrote this book called Casket Flare, which is what we'll be talking about. The premise of Casket Flare is that Logan stayed at a motel called the Skylark on the outskirts of Chicago. He stayed there for three nights, fasting inside his room. During that time, he organized a seance and transcribed the experience in real time as this surreal collection of automatic writing, audio, photos, and incantations. Altogether, the premise is told through Logan's magical framework, along with Michael Correo's design. This book was put out by the publisher Inside the Castle, and I truly hope you guys enjoy this special Halloween episode of Wake Island as we invoke the eeriness of the Skylark Motel with Logan Berry. So I'm inclined toward paranoia, no matter what happens at at least any stage in my life, maybe I'm still connected to my child self, but they've always resulted in really, really like scary silhouettes, um, really like just feeling like I'm dead and not coming back. Um, even, even, even as a kid. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've I've always been, yeah. Um, my friend, I always tell people I had an old soul. Um, so I've always been kind of like serious and, um, somewhat not austere, but just kind of, uh, humorless. I I think I have a sense of humor, but I think kind of humorless, but, (laughs) but my one friend was like, well, that's because we had to grow up fast. And I was like, Oh, that's actually not a, not a bad, uh, way of looking at it. So why is that? just we um the friend i'm referring to we both were caregivers for our parents who had a lot of like addiction problems and stuff like that so i do think that when you when you take on the like um caregiver role really really early yeah it it, i don't know you i get whenever i trip it's like i need to make sure all the doors are locked i want to make sure i know where my spouse is at i want to make sure you know that i'm like something is wrong with the dog i don't know it's like I, i don't know the like those those are the sorts of thoughts that creep in uh, reg- regardless you know what i'm saying you know 100% i mean i'm not it was never in that situation but my parents were to my grandmother and my mom worked in hospice and she was a social worker so i definitely was like around that kind of stuff mm-hmm. but i think that makes that makes perfect sense i mean i i i would say it probably didn't make you humorless but maybe more like compassionate and empathetic i would hope i mean it definitely seems like a good entryway to talking about this book and seances and horror because it seems like it's all kind of connected in some liminal way a hundred percent a hundred percent i'm definitely interested in how seemingly disparate things interact with each other when you kind of just force them to and that sort of like baggage and residue we carry from um artistic artifacts all the way to like personal ones and um, sort of blending it all not excluding anything because you know there's sort of like conventions uh uh surrounding a certain like like artistic product however i do like conventions a lot i like cliches they're cliches for a reason um and archetypes and all that kind of stuff i feel like hopefully this isn't derailing too much but um 
I like feeling like within a sort of like stranger, more out there kind of work, putting things out there that I kind of, I don't want to assume, but have a good hunch that many, many people who would encounter the work would have a kind of emotional resonance with. Well, it's like making sure the doors are locked before you go all the way out of your mind. Exactly. Exactly. That's 100% right. Exactly. There's a few things here, things here before we, we tear the rug and, and start digging and, and rearranging. I want to get into the, the, the seance stuff. What's your relationship to it? How did that start? Where did that come from? Like, is that something you were interested in as a kid? It's a good question. I mean, I think... On the one hand, it really starts with like a fascination with the macabre and the out there and the strange stuff. I always gravitated toward like the most sinister characters in children's movies. I like um, like the strange colors, the strange um, intonations that like the more extravagant like Disney villains had from those old films. Like I always liked that kind of stuff. So it probably started there. So. I, I grew up as a cradle Catholic. Um, so uh, I heard one guy once say that when you grow up in that way, uh, it kind of imbues your world with like kind of a magical realist worldview. So you do kind of like have this kind of like, oh, like there's extraordinary phenomena like transpiring all the time around us. Um, and then fell off hardcore atheist and then like, I call it like a spiritual atheism. I was really interested in like the far extremes of that and like kind of hewing your own path to quote Ceylon and like trying to like come up with your own system of thought. And it can be, that can be very isolating and, and just fucking annoying, honestly, uh, to, to, to deal with people who are so committed to that. Cause ultimately I'm kind of like, I like community. I like people. I like, um, I, I, I want to relate to, to people and at any rate the first and only seance i've done is this book um so it really came from kind of reading so casket flare um is sort of a response to inside the castle the press that put it out um the call for the castle freak submissions the castle freak is a digital residency where you're supposed to write like a I think it's like a hundred thousand word book in like five days. And the idea is that um, you cannot do that without computer assistance. However, um, I, I mean, I tried out the different computer interfaces and stuff and I'm a bit of a recovering Luddite. So I, I don't know how to do a lot of computer shit. Um, so I found all the programs and, and so forth very cumbersome. But there was like this earworm from the from the call to submissions that just stuck with me. And it was Stephen King's quote, um, a human consciousness did not write Cujo, I think, because he was on cocaine and lots of beer <laughs> when he wrote that. <laughs> um, so it was like just so the idea of doing a seance kind of came from trying to figure out, well, how would I do something like this in an extraordinarily short amount of time? So then seancing, I just kind of like read up on it and then um, tried out different technologies to figure out how to translate a seance into a text. Uh, and I can go more into detail about that if you'd like. Yeah, walk me through it. Yeah, that's, I was just thinking also the time limit is like another form of constraint, right? I was saying like I can go 
I can go someplace in my mind if I know it's only overnight or I know it's only for a week or whatever that, you know, you really can't do if you're in your life in general without risking just total madness. Anyway, I just, I just thought of that when you were saying it. I think that that's absolutely right. Knowing that there's an end to it is really important because when you're it, like part of you, at least for me, when I got there, there was all this buildup. It took me like three years to like plan this, like save up a vacation day to tag on to the end of a weekend, just coordinating everything and making sure I got like a, an old school Bluetooth headset to wear so I could, could speak uh, while I was in the motel intoning different things and um, hopefully capture the kind of like phenomena via the, via the transcriptions. And the time being a constraint ended up being really important because it was like almost like just enough time to fester in my self-doubt and um, like kind of like embarrassment and, and, and lack of knowing if it was going to work. And then by the third night, it feels like significant that it was three nights. So the, by the third night, it got really, really fucking out there. And, and tell me about the location, because, you know, when you had sent me this book, I'd been checking out a hotel over by me called the Skyway and it's by mm. the, it's by the airport. And I've just been always fascinated with that part of town. Cause it seems like a part of town that's like right next to the nexus of transportation. Yet it's a place where nothing really happens. Like the part of town by every airport has like a few weird hotels, maybe a bar, a diner, you know, they're usually somewhat desolate. And I don't think there's been too many books or horror movies about that. Like we're used to the New England forest or the uh, abandoned Southern house. Um, there's definitely been a lot of stuff coming up about the desert. You know, you have Candyman, which is like kind of the urban version of it. But that part of uh, Americana is untouched, yet the most haunting location I can think of. That's a really good point. Um from from my end just preparing for it um i was looking for the cheapest motels i wanted to stay within the city limits and it just so happened that the motels over there were the cheapest but i 100 percent see what you mean it is this kind of haunted space and the, in the book i kind of justify it by saying that it's a, a like there's so many different people coming and going and then the, the chemical expulsions from the airplanes create kind of an interesting field of um, of gases and, and elements and strange mixtures and concoctions. So that, that does have this kind of like in between this, that's, that, that can be, that, that it feels absolutely right. Like ripe for horror. You have a part in it where you, you read a letter that sets up the scenario. Can you read that to us? Um, alrighty. So dear listener, Paul, David, June 19th, 2019. I've been seen by something that can't be seen. It's stricken me since childhood. My sensory organs glitched in ways that I can neither ignore nor explain. Since I started working the graveyard shifts at the group home three years ago, it's occurred more frequently, more ferociously. A restless energy surges at night. I won't belabor this. Shadow people is what the late Art Bell might have called them. This is wrong. It overdetermines their status in space. These things exceed conventional comprehension. And although they yearn, they're not human. They're asentient, like ripples of shadow. 
gnawing at the edge of perception. They're amplifying, thirsting for something. Their messages make no sense. One resounds clearly. All things pass into the night. Enough is enough. At the end of June, a hospice nurse will drive me to the Skylark Motel. We will check into a room together. She will give me a full physical examination, and then she will leave. For three days, locked inside the Skylark, I will call to them. I will undergo physical alterations. I will fast. I will perform a seance while wearing a Bluetooth headset. I will capture them through speech-to-text transmissions. I aim to become a Ouija board in flesh. Send me a message, a poem, a question. Something short will suffice, but long is okay. Help me retain a semblance of our shared reality. LGNBRRY22 at gmail.com. Don't worry, reading emails won't betray the ritual process. On the contrary, in an interview with Art Bell, Thunderstrikes, a shaman of the Twisted Hairs Metis Society Council of Elders, says that shadow entities adore technology. It functions as a vector for them, a transmission site. Responding to you will be braided into the schema of the seance. Thank you, Logan. Mm, I love that, man. And is the Logan in this book supposed to be you? Did you want to construct this as a memoir or is it like a blueprint for something else? That's a great question. Um, yeah, so definitely, it's definitely me. Um, I'm, I'm attracted to things that initially annoy me or I find rather repugnant. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things that I was definitely fed into this casket flare situation was kind of hating the discourse around autofiction. I just, a lot of the conversations about writing, I find very, um, tedious. Um, yeah. and there's, of course there's great autofiction. And then of course it's, I think it's very popular right now, as far as I can assume by the way people talk about it. Um, but, um, I kind of like, I've, I've, like I said, I've seen it done well. I don't really care about it, but I found it rather annoying, but then I kind of was kept thinking about it and I'm like, let, let me do something that's so, um, painfully present tense that it almost like overcomes autofiction or like, it's like too, too present tense that like autofiction aficionados would be like, well, this, this doesn't really work. And it's not about like dredging up your memories or revisiting the past or anything like that. Correct. Like the surrealist kind of automatic, right? Or like you're almost doing the thing. You're doing the event for the writing rather than, you know, a more classic just memoir thing of like writing about previously occurring events. A hundred percent. Yeah. In my mind, I was calling it auto, auto, auto fiction, like automatic autophagic which means self-eating uh auto as in self-fiction but then yeah I, I tried to make it as non-fiction as possible so there you, there you have it and maybe that's important you know there's a lot of stuff in in that letter you just read to unpack you know that we could kind of spoke outward in different directions but there's you know the kind of logistics of seances and rituals which might relate back to catholicism too right in terms of you know not just a magical realist sense of the world but a very 
organized ritualistic sense of the world, right? That you both, you know, summon certain entities and banish certain entities using these very prescribed and kind of official and, you know, hierarchical rituals. That seems like why, you know, the Catholic church is so associated with things like exorcism and possession. So that's one direction I think would be interesting to go. And then the other, which, which we could return to maybe is to talk a little bit about uh, Art Bell and, and these kind of, you know, the kinds of stuff you would find on Coast to Coast and like what your relationship to that is. Both are really interesting paths. Um, I'll start with the first. Um, there's a sort of like image or, or thing that gets referenced a few times throughout the book called the floating heart of hearts. And that comes directly from when I was a kid and in church. And I remember there's the literal of the catholic mass and there's some prayer i i if i worked hard enough i could probably remember every part of it but i remember there's like a call and response style to it where it's like we lift up our hearts we lift them up to the lord something 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 and i remember being a kid and closing my eyes and wondering maybe when i close my eyes all of our hearts float to the rostrum where the priest is standing and there's like a giant magical heart like above there and it, it joins the heart so I, I could for some reason when i was in the motel that that image came back to me as a kind of like comforting thing so a, a couple points in the book when i was feeling really scared and um uh too deep i would it sort of invoke the floating heart of hearts as a kind of grounding image or or entity to to, to talk to when I first got to the motel, there was so much buildup. It took about three years to figure it all out. And then I sat down on the bed and I just like, my jaw was dropped open. I just was like, what am I going to say here? Like, I, although I did like <laughs> prepare things to say, it's just so weird to just start talking to yourself. Uh, or talk Tell to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but then, but then there's a way in which, and maybe this is too far off the current subject, but there is a real way in which it only made sense to me when I was thinking about somebody reading it. So it was as if, and I think that this is something that is true of almost any book, but Casket Flare maybe makes it more like a theme almost, is that like a reader is summoned by a text. Um, we could get into a conversation about who we imagine our, the, we're writing for or something like that. But when you're when you're speaking a book into existence, you do just sort of, imagine it like communicating with somebody in the future and and consequently i always feel like there's a present tenseness to this book like whenever i open it i'm like back in that motel and whenever somebody reads it you're with me in that motel because i was talking to you um the heaviness was by the third night I, it felt like there wasn't enough or quality material created there there were some interesting interruptions that happened that i thought would make that would be good for a book but by that third night, I went to bed. I slept on the floor because I was really scared of bed bugs. Um, and uh, so I'm laying on the floor. And then I just was like, like awakened by my mind, like racing and just all this like overflow of imagery and thoughts and, and words started coming to me. So I started, so I put on the headset and just started saying it. I mean, if you go to the, I wish, let's see like the third night section, like all that stuff was just what I was seeing and what I was hearing. And then there was um, a light on the wall, a little, a little tiny, like 
square of like white light um i tried to take a photograph of it it doesn't translate super well but um in the book we we did put it in there um and it it had no apparent source um so it it felt like it it got really heavy then because i was like seeing like a lot of like people being murdered on the side of the road and I, th I think I just got like the LARP got too deep or something I don't know it's it's definitely something um well it's I think the difference between a performance and a ritual like you've found a way to dissolve the barrier between those two things and it becomes this like weird um I don't know, like spiritual theater or something like that, especially like you said, like you went there with the intention of conjuring something up for a future reader using technology and this like space as your, as your tools and medium to do that. And I think that comes across. Did you have a, a ritual around how you were going to go about getting the, the raw data that would end up in the book? It's a great question. So yeah, I think it's best to talk about this book from that perspective like how did it actually happen so as you kind of got from from the intro letter i was having some kind of like um weird experiences at work where i was working as an overnight at a, at a youth home where there would just be kind of like perceptual anomalies i can give specific examples if you'd like i guess i'll, I'll give one one night sure. i was like I, I could see like a, a hallway where all the children were sleeping it's almost like dorm style so i could see each of their doors and um, I was on my laptop laying under the foosball table, which had like a little cart, like a throw rug underneath the foosball table. I could see the hallway. I was just tired of standing and sitting. So I was laying down, looking at the hallway on my laptop. And then this divot in the carpet came running toward me as if it were like a rat. And there was nothing to be seen. The divot remained. Um, the sound was, was there, but that was, that's just an example of, one of the strange occurrences and then a lot of the other overnights in the different parts of the home also have had strange experiences and i think it does come with the territory of being up at night and playing around with your sleep schedule and all that kind of stuff and the people um, that are there are they all are they, are they all young the, the 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 clients were children so all the children were asleep um, but then everybody, yeah. So all the the, the people at the home are, are children, and then so that must be like thing. heavy psychic energy to have around you as well. I think so. I remember, and I, <laughs> yeah. So one night I went into checking out because this is a great, great transition. Um, once the children were asleep, I would walk every thirty minutes and check on them in their rooms to make sure there was no deviancy or truancy or whatever <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> um, and then I would walk back to my, like it was like an analog log, like a giant ledger and it would just write down like 12.30 AM, like no updates, you know, or 12.45 AM. Uh, So-and-so came out for a glass of water and went back to sleep. So it was, it was, that was, that was the ritual of the work. Um, and one day I did check on a kid and it was like a jump scare in a movie. And I think that's why sometimes horror in books is not scary to me. That was another thing going into this. And I swear to God, I'm gonna get back to that freaking question. But um, so horror books rarely scare me. And I wanted a book that scared me like books could scare me in, in like middle school and stuff. So I wanted something that could really, really freak me out. Anyway, so and that, that's why it's, sorry, why it's hard to translate sometimes into into fiction is, is like sometimes 
like I said, cliche is a cliche for a reason. And you see things happen in real life that, that are almost like too good for fiction. So for example, I went in and I checked on this child and it was like a jump scare in a movie. His eyes opened so fucking wide. They weren't like his eyes. They opened so wide and I like double take and his eyes were closed. And I don't think he was fucking with me. I like stayed there for a little <laughs> bit. But you know, does, does he, it was like, it was in the later hours. So I think he was asleep. But that was that was a weird hallucination or or manifestation or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I got to thinking it like and speaking to an earlier question you asked about like how did I come into seances? Um, I started thinking about the work routine as a kind of like corporate seance. Like, what are you doing? How do you hold your body at work? Um, like, what are the rituals you have there? And like, what are you unknowingly conjuring by? Um, so. I decontextualized my work routine and put it in the motel. I, I figured out like I walked, you know, northeast at the at the uh, at the at the youth home, and then at the motel I walked northeast every thirty minutes, and I just replicated my work routine. Um, and then what was there? Um, I made an altar near the like television of like just potent things I found around the city, like a fallen branch that had this really interesting jagged look to it. Um, oh, it, it, it. Going back to the motel, like thinking about it, just really, it, uh, it, it unsettles me. There's an eeriness to it, man. Like I, I looked it up <laughs> on um, Google Maps and I went through all the images that, um, you know, people that have stayed at the hotel upload to that site. And uh, yeah, there's definitely like an eeriness to it. And there's a, is there a truck stop next to it or like a truck depot or something? Yeah, there's, there's a, there's a Starbucks now. I know those aren't in the Google images. now. there's, there is like, I think you're, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's across the parking lot. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's like a truck depot and then there's like a, a restaurant supply shop nearby. Yeah. Did it have um, a lot lizard vibe? A lot lizard vibe. What's a lot lizard? Um, like were there truckers there and prostitution? Oh yeah, 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 for sure. There was definitely, definitely uh, uh, sex workers, and um, there was a couple families living there too, which I always find interesting because I'm, the motels, would, like when I would add it up, it was more expensive than my rent. But I would hope that they're getting like vouchers or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, no, it was definitely, it was definitely a seedy, seedy vibe. And um, bringing the occult stuff in there. I mean, I was really terrified that somebody would walk in on me. Like, I know the staff is like limited and they kind of just keep to themselves. But that was, uh, can you imagine like <laughs> yeah. working there? I felt like I'm coming in on this, like this whole scene of horrors. Like I, I may, I gave plenty of time to clean it up. I didn't want somebody to clean up like a, the, the, the marine phytoplankton <laughs> I put around the bed. And stuff. They open I'm, the door. They're just like, "Damn it, this guy's crazier than the last guy." <laughs> yeah, <they're> like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, was your no, goal was, to stay in for the entire three days? Like, was that part of the concept from the beginning? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I knew it would be three days, and and sort of speaking to that, like, sort of like corporate occultism element i'm like well i only have one vacation day to use i'll throw it onto a weekend make it a good three days and, and to and to not go outside at all exactly exactly i did not go holy shit so you all. stayed in there the whole time yeah yeah I fasted oh stayed in there totally fasted you had no food at all for three days 
Um, I cheated once. Okay, so I guess I went out once. There was a vending machine that I got a muffin from um, <laughs> before the third day, and it, it what a horrible thing after like three days of fasting to eat like a like a you know a, a corn syrup muffin fluff. Um, <laughs> it just felt like knives going down my stomach. Um, but yeah, no, that was that, that I did cheat once, and I can't deny that. That's that's kind of part of it, the drama of the, of the third section, maybe. That was something else. Yeah, I had I had a friend come and take some photos um, so that I didn't didn't go outside, um, and then I took some photos before before the weekend. Um, yeah, I've got like um, speaking to some of the things that I decorated the room with, um, some stones that felt significant, um, candles, desiccated roses, candles. Um, yeah, yeah, that was actually kind of fun. Uh, I got like, you know, like an Amazon bulk order of like a hundred candle discs, and I'd made a runway in the motel room to sort of recreate uh, the the children's rooms, or like metaphorically, like bring them in with me, so there'd be two for each of their eyes and one for each door. It's just like, uh, to me, there's a very literalness that is both humorous and like sort of disenchanting about the whole thing. But also, when I look at it, I I don't I feel like I'm like the worst reader of this work because it all makes way too much sense to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, you have a quote that I read of yours in a from a previous interview and i think this kind of might tie into what we're talking about but you said theater is a space for masks for smoke and mirrors and synchronized heartbeats poetry is a space for incantation and psychosis together they become cocoon like gooey and messy as i've argued elsewhere the real today is far more theatrical than theater. I'm interested in an ultra theater, in a total work of art. So it seems like you are really setting up a space for this, this ultra theater of the mind and <laughs> that, you know, you could basically conjure this up for yourself by inviting them in, by creating the space, by setting the stage and knowing that like that there's going to be this object that would come out of it ultimately and that like the conjuring would uh, be continuous in some way. A hundred percent. I think there's so many questions about identity floating around in this day and age and um, really interesting, rigorous questioning about uh, uh, consensus reality. There's all, and, and it's such a great theme of your show, both of these things and, and the sort of like fine line between the madness of civilization and then the kind of like frenzied escapist madness of the artist like these are questions i really really like but i think maybe our task today as as creators is to um create those contexts in which we can sort of take the questions that are floating out there and push them to their extreme i mean i'm a bit of an extremophile when it comes to art i like people that take risks i like um i like projects that that sort of push into those boundaries and territories. I think that's one of my favorite parts of the book is that like, it's very heavily designed. I definitely want to talk about like, what made you want to tell this story through that kind of design. But I do mm -hmm. appreciate that. Um, it almost feels like a blueprint or something. And uh, one of my favorite things about Naked Lunch is that despite not being like the easiest book to read or whatever you want to say about it, it still feels like something that got dredged out of his psyche that like you kind of have to be in a sort of 
drug psychosis or you know the we were recently talking about this book the blind owl that's um in in iran seen as this bad omen and you know the author killed himself after he wrote it and it's been said that like people who read the book will also go mad and um it's cool that you like literally took that task and made something that is like a bit of theater that happens in this cd hotel and yeah, it's cool that you were like made a literal manifestation of that kind of art. My my hope would be that somebody out there, or maybe or maybe it's a caution against it, would that someone would try to to follow the text to perform the text. It is like exactly like you're saying, like a kind of a blueprint for what was happening, and maybe somebody else would give it a shot. I can't say I recommend it, but I'd be interested if somebody did give it a shot. Yeah, that would that would be that would be something else. And that's maybe one of the things when you talk about summoning a reader, you know, there's the physical sense of just like, is an actual person going to be on the other end, you know, to read the book, uh, which I think is, you know, relates to the heaviness you talk about. I think like every writer, even if you're working in a less explicitly occult headspace, you know, no matter what kind of book you're writing, you have the sense that, you know, you're setting out into this sea of figments alone, right? And you're you're opening your mind to conjure these kind of unreal beings that you're writing about and i think there is this fear that you'll just like wander away into the desert and like end up being a false prophet if there's no one on the other end to kind of receive the testament right if, if like your vision doesn't conjure someone on the other end there's not just the fear of like humiliation or you know not having your ego validated but there's like this deeper fear that you really will be alone in some nightmare space with no one to receive you right and i think you know all book all artists face that fear. And it's probably a good fear to face. Like that's part of what makes works of art good is when you feel someone facing that. Right. And, and ironically, that is what summons readers. But I think also in, in another sense, like there's not just summoning the reader physically, but there's also like, what are you summoning out of the reader? Right. Or if I think about myself as a reader, as well as a writer, like when I think about, you know, what do I want to read? It's like, I'm me, I guess, right. I, you know, I am who I am, but I'm, going to choose what to read based on who I want to feel like, right? Or what I want to have called out of my own recesses by what I'm reading. And maybe that's almost another way in, in which Casket Flare is like a different sort of auto fiction in that it's not just somebody empathizing with another person's life experience. It's, you know, like Paul was saying, it feels like a recipe for having your own experience. Like the way, you know, saying a prayer or a curse or an incantation it might not matter if you believe it or not. It might be that the words themselves have a certain power, the way certain poetry like will just give you chills or make you cry or something, no matter what. It doesn't matter what you think about it. It's something embedded in the actual words. I think that that's, there, there's so much to unpack there, and that's that's really excellent and, and true. And, and it, it's a really good point, of, and it speaks to what Paul was saying about like needing to be in a certain headspace to, to read something like Naked Lunch is, yeah, like what kind of, headspace are you are you conjuring or, or do you need to to experience a work i think that's a good question and and speaking of the solitary elements of of, of fiction writing or, or art making um like i mean i think there's a a reason why plato said that he would ban poets from the ideal polis because they traffic in falsities and imageries but i, I guess i'm interested in the in the realness of those falsities and like that kind of like uh, charlatanism but but i also have to point out that yeah there i guess you're right david yeah there was there is a deep fear that this that this 
conjuring or project or whatever you want to call it um, would have no receiving end. Um, and that's probably my own like misgivings and, 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 and uh, yeah, that would, I guess there was that fear that was definitely latent, but I never really articulated that before. Sure. It would be really weird to do such a thing and to just be left with it. It would feel terrible. I mean, honestly, it, 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 it the design process took a long time and, and publication takes time and I'm totally cool with that but wow I was so happy when this came out because it literally felt like cutting off like a, a, a spectral appendage like it was like <laughs> this extra thing it was it needed to be done it needed to be spread it needed to be away um from like a deeply emotional level and and just I've never felt this way with a, with another work um but yeah definitely with this one and it, it was like like literal thing like um, like I said, I was, I was like really hardcore atheist for a long time. And, um, I never practiced magic or occult like legitimately, but after doing this book, I certainly got more interested in reading up on, on, uh, magic and, and disciplines like that. And I think also I'd, I'd be remiss not to say like one of the reasons the book is the way it is was when I got the idea for the seance book i did check out occult books and go to those kind of like warlock uh, wiccan head shop style places and, and look at the books and i didn't super like it makes sense it's like a recipe book like how do you conjure fortune or how do you conjure love and all this kind of stuff i found it very dreary to read i was like well i get that you're trying to teach me to do it but i kind of like wanted that immediate like so how did it work for you feelings so i kind of wanted that all to happen yeah, at once. yeah. I, and maybe partially too if you get into yeah like satanic culture or wiccan culture or you know that that head shop kind of world you know there's nothing wrong with community right but there's something weirdly comforting about it you know there's a, it's a way of like bringing people together and giving them some kind of solidarity and like commerce and subculture with each other <laughs> Which is, you know, it's a good feeling, I guess, but it's like anti-magic. It it's almost like it doesn't seem to have the courage of its own convictions in terms of the yeah. question of like, is magic actually, are you literally saying Satan is real, right? Are you guys like actually witches? <laughs> like there's a way in which like that feels like a very fundamental question, but it's almost like the question that those kinds of subcultures seem to actually not answer in, in a really interesting way. <laughs> it's a really, it's really well put. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It's, it's like really cozy and, and, and friendly and. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's the togetherness and the private element and yeah, that that's maybe where the magic happens, not in the books or, or the, the public facing stuff. Uh, a definition of magic that I think you guys would dig is, is from Dion Fortune, the British occultist. She's defined magic as the art of changing consciousness at will. Mm -hmm. And when I read that, it was like, it was so broad that it kind of made me like think of like rethink things like tv social media there's like this kind of like conjuring that's constantly happening around us um so like again this kind of like magical framework for looking at the world um perhaps uh injects this normal kind of like hyper banal stuff around us with a kind of more sinister energy or you you can attune to some of the things that are are disruptive to your um uh Oh gosh, it's it's sorry. I'm starting to sound a little new agey, but like your potentiality, or like like what you're trying to like you're trying to like just have a good day, and then suddenly you're you're bummed out, doom scrolling, and all this kind of stuff. Like what is being conjuring conjured by that? And then it's like 
the elephant in a room is just like what psychic harm is uh being done to us by the just sheer amount of ultra violence that we're seeing i've never had it be this uh relentless and i definitely don't want to like get into any kind of political territory here but i mean it's definitely something that i think is on everybody's mind like i just got out of a jujitsu class before this and there's just like a weirdness over the entire room and just kind of like a, a a silence and then afterwards people would ask you like how you were doing and then everybody would kind of laugh because everybody's thinking about the same thing and there's so there was something kind of magical and really menacing about that it feels so strange that it it also is starting to feel normal and there's something very like tragic about that as well i mean it's not as tragic as what's happening in reality but you start to have a really hard time parsing out what is reality and what isn't and, and like things that are really happening are done to generate those images and then the response of people to seeing those images causes further things to happen in reality and like that that dance is inextricable like yesterday paul and i you know when we were thinking about this conversation we were talking about like the culture of video nasties you know and i'm sure uh logan you, you've like come across these but like this thing that happened in the early 80s like the early days of vhs when these kind of pseudo snuff films would get circulated you know in films that would sort of pass among teenagers or maybe even even like preteens of you know this film shows a real murder or like this there would even be these uh publicity stunts where you know the person who was ostensibly killed in the movie would hide for a long time and like you know wouldn't be seen and you know there'd be like stories in the press about how maybe they were really dead and stuff like that um you know and kids would try to get their hands on them and they'd be these sort of copied you know copies of copies of hand hand labeled tapes and that kind of stuff in in a weird way it was almost the exact opposite of what's happening now right if that they were very singular they were very hard to find they were taken to be real by the people who saw them and they weren't real right like if you watch you know cannibal holocaust or the last house on the left or something like clearly those aren't real murders we know now and in some weird way there's a kind of almost innocence of imagining being like an 11 year old hearing from some 15 year old that there's this tape that if you see it, you'll never be the same, you know, the stuff that was like, <laughs> you know, came up in the ring or or whatever. Whereas now it's the opposite, right? It's just endless proliferation of footage of very real murders that is so overwhelming and so propagandized by like, you know, endless numbers of, of interests that you almost take it as not real or like you can't, even if you believe it's real, you can't perceive it as real after you've seen it enough times or seen enough of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm deeply appreciative for what you two do with Wake Island, which is um, with things that are going on that are deeply, deeply sad and, and deeply, deeply unethical and, and just beyond the pale. Um, I like that you've created this space for this kind of like meta conversation about it, which I think is really, really useful. And I think it's just, there's no doubt about it. Seeing a fucking Wendy's ad next to charred, children is like that deeply harmful for everybody it's it's not doing anybody any favors i'm calling on the spirits of everyone who ever died in this house if you're present give us a sign give us a sign all the dead come to us
There's a there's a second part in in Casket Flare, kind of a bonus that I did later, um, and it absolutely attunes to to what you're describing there, David, because um, my spouse and I were living in a, a haunted house for a little while, and it was for financial reasons we got free rent and we were supposed to flip this house. But what do you mean by haunted, haunted house? Was it haunted or was it a haunted house for? people to go into and trip out great question it was it was uh the the first thing it was just like a house it was a, a family member's house that they'd abandoned and were staying with other family members because it got out of hand with the hoarding and the sort of degradation <laughs> and um it um it needed a lot of work and it was kind of like a, a faustian covid bargain where they're like hey like like the family member was like kind of nudging me like hey if you stay here and help me get this ready to rent or sell uh you can stay here for free and it, it you know i feel like covid for all like it's terrible but it also opened these like weird things that we all did that um we never would have done otherwise wow like, so you lived yeah. in this scooped out order house yeah, we did. And we cleaned wow. it. And, and it was, and that's why I call it a Faustian bargain. And like, again, these cliches from horror movies, like, are just they you couldn't put them in a fucking movie again, or people do, but people are like, yeah, right. But they, we really could, could not say it was a haunted house until we left. Like we experienced all these strange happenings and felt really horrible the whole fucking time. But it was only afterwards that we could, we could like, cohere the the sentence that was a haunted house it was it was a terrible year like right when i first got there i got pneumonia uh my spouse when <laughs> my spouse was hearing radio voices from nowhere and all this stuff and while we were living at living at the house um casket flare was being edited as an amazing designer writer mike correo designed it he essentially took what like the raw data from the from the motel and then translated uh it into this like really beautiful uh text object like um but at the time i was feeling really uh not confident in it insofar as like i think casket flare the first part sort of invited chaos into the text and i was starting to feel very um like it was incomplete or like it just wasn't a cohesive statement or, or something and maybe it was just you know like, like lack of confidence or whatever but um at any rate mike finished up it looked amazing it was no fault of his it was just my own misgivings and, and self-hatred and that kind of stuff and so once we left the stuff of dreams exactly <laughs> <laughs> like once we once we left the house i we and my friends and I were like, "Oh, that was that was a haunted house." Um, then I got really interested in like figuring out how do we like purge ourselves of that experience, uh, like how do we like have a clean slate going forward? So, for example, we ended up moving into a temporary housing situation in Oakland, and the the night uh, we we first moved in there. I slept so well, like I hadn't the whole time we were at that house. And as I fell asleep, I saw like above my eyes, like shake uh, snake skin, like shedding across my eyes. And then I fell asleep and I slept so hard. And there's it, later on, I was like looking at the Bible, just, just giving it, giving it aspects of the read. And there's like all this stuff about 
like half the stuff Jesus is saying is like purging demons and telling his followers to purge demons. And he does talk about like the sloughing of this sloughing of the snake skin and, and all this kind of stuff as a kind of metaphor for getting rid of rid of this stuff. So then um, basically I started reading about exorcisms and so forth. And there's this, you can get, of course, any PDF of almost anything you want of many, of many occulted things. And, and in the Catholic exorcism, there's a section devoted to the spatial exorcism which I had not seen in a film before, but it is about purging a space of many um, nefarious things. Is it like a poltergeist thing? Um, as in like the movie poltergeist? Or, like, or the like phenomenon? The phenomenon. Um, I think from in the like sort of like Catholic hermeneutic, like they would tell you that it's like demons and, and they're very, very strict. They do like, um, you know, they want to make sure there's psychological evaluation, all this stuff when it's on a person. But for... For a spatial exorcism, it's like almost like a throwaway section within within the um, within this document. It's like like I'd say like in this three hundred page thing, it's like two paragraphs. It's like you can do this like for a, a location too that feels filled with a lot of different things. And of course, you're nobody's supposed to do these rituals. You have to be trained. You have to go through all these uh, uh, levels yourself within the church, but. Like, like to finally connect it back to what David was saying, that, you know, the fact we can access it, anybody could could give it a shot if you wanted, if you have the PDF and you're so inclined. Um, and I even found an app, Catholic Exorcism, so you could just like read it and, and perform your own. And of course, that's that's ill-advised by all the authorities, but I thought that would make an interesting second part of the book would be to perform <laughs> a spatial exorcism on, the, on this deeply haunted house. And I feel like, Whereas the first part was sort of invoking the chaos and, and conjuring the chaos, this was far more about like um, purging and, uh, mm. and and imposing imposing structure on a chaotic situation. Building on that, I think in a way this gets to the root of like any artistic impulse. But I think it's a, it's would be an interesting question to consider through this lens. Is like I think it's obvious to almost everyone why you would want to purge a place or a person of a demonic presence right like why you would want your house to not be haunted anymore or your child let's say to not be possessed anymore but i think it's a more specific and personal and kind of strange question of why would anyone go the other way like why would you want to invoke these things the way you did in the motel but in a way that's kind of the origin of the book right sure and it's a it's a really good question i mean i think part of it was maybe maybe I'd need to go to analysis to figure out the why conjure like for, for the first part, but certainly I think it's connected to wanting there to be more than there was. I think I was deeply depressed and deeply like, like kind of stuck in my own life. So like conjuring something like, I, I think there's a line in, in cast of or the, the part one in the seance in the motel where I say like stare into art's red eye. And um, I suppose you could read that as art, but what I was thinking of is art, like like the creative process. Like there was this way in which like I wanted to in, inject some kind of like intensity or like otherness into into my day to day life. Um, so I think that that's like like all the all the people who are in the business of purging and getting rid of these these negative low frequency elementals or ghosts or what have you. They all say that you have to. Um, invite these things in first 
Um, and that, that makes a lot of sense to me. It, it, it kind of does. And, and it, it also um, transitions into, into a question that I think has guided a lot of my um, artistic output, which is the question of evil. Like, what is it? Is it a thing? Is it a person? Is it like, how does it work? And um, I have some thoughts on it, uh, if you want to hear it, but maybe Please. we should. Okay, yeah, like I think evil, at least identifying it, it's like porn, you know it when you see it. But my, my, my caveat to that is we are also very uh, uh, dull but like, or, or inured to pornography at this point. Like, like, like scrolling Instagram, like can you imagine our great, great, great grandparents like looking through Instagram? They'd be probably in many cases scandalized by what they were seeing. So like, I wonder if evil too like that that sort of like faculty where you like know it when you smell it sort of thing is is being dulled by this exposure to so much depravity and and evil but um evil itself um i'm maybe it's my more like like a like a belief in the like like goodness of, of people but like i think evil works itself through people and situations and like people that you pick out as being like that is an evil person, they are just like totally infected by evilness in, in its many and uh, various formats. Um, yeah, and I think that's like the house too, just like had this, like I remember when I when we realized the house was haunted, I called friends who had visited and asked them about what they thought. And I remember my friend, Jackie, who's very like, just very, I don't wanna say literal minded, but like she's very like, um objective in the way she thinks about things she said you know logan that's interesting you said that i always had fun when we were together but when i was asleep she slept on a couch upstairs um she said she was almost brought to tears constantly and couldn't quite put her finger on why and there's just there's these certain spaces and people that like traffic in this kind of like badness and you know it when you smell it and i think we're all capable of that or or, or we can become dulled to it ourselves and and uh go towards it. Well, I think you're totally right. And I'm sort of obsessed with hoarder houses. Like I love that show. And I'm curious, was this person just hoarding garbage? There was no like animals or anything like that or anything specific. We found snakes in the house at one point, but she wasn't hoarding the snakes. It was, it was a mix of things. A lot of it was they lived off of the side of a highway. So they were really like a major highway. Um, that everybody has to take to get from the Bay Area to to the coast. Um, so a lot of their friends would like go up there and dump their dead relatives things there because they knew they had space for it. Um, <laughs> so they just had like family members heirlooms from generations and generations. And then they built these like sort of like jerry rigged sh sheds to accommodate all this accruing stuff. I mean, it's like not it's kind of like hillbilly vibes it's just like you know like you can imagine the lawn with just so much stuff but it was in a mountain on the side of a highway so at once like um extremely public because like there's constant cars zooming by but also incredibly isolated because the other side of the of the property was just cascading nothingness beyond like rocks trees etc so it felt very at once lonely and traversed um and then as far as items in the actual house go beyond family heirlooms like from other people's uh, relatives who had passed there was just like a lot of um construction equipment pallets it was so funny they like one of the tasks i got was um to to um 
purge the garbage, obviously. But one of the things they had me do was throw wood off the side of the mountain because their thought was that wood will eventually disintegrate and it's organic and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. But also, it's a huge fire hazard too. So there's like this, the side of the mountain is just covered in like, like wood detritus. Um, there was hundreds and hundreds of enemas um, everywhere. There was just this kind of eclectic mix of medical items. Um, in one of the rooms, my dog died in the house. It was really sad. He was really old. He, he had a long and happy life and he was chill almost anywhere, but he fucking hated this house. He was petrified and only liked being in our bed with us. And, um, yeah, uh, 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 there was one room whenever he would go into it, he would just defecate upon entry, which I found very <laughs> odd. I mean, he was, he was housebroken. He was, he was a good, well-behaved boy. His name was Chomp. Um, but he he hated the house. He knew something was wrong, you know? You've seen this show before, right? Uh, Hoarders? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time I watch that show, like, obviously the houses are, like, in complete disrepair and they're filled with shit. But then when they clean them out, there's something mm. so fucking eerie about them. You know, like mm. it's a put in the show. It's like this joyous moment where the cleaning crew comes in and you see the person pretending to be happy that they no longer have all their mania surrounding them and giving them comfort. But there's this like real creepy desolateness. It's weird to think of a space where the thing that was wrong with it was that it needed to be purged of physical objects. Like, what else would you feel in that space when it is emptied out, other than a feeling of wanting to be expelled from it or, you know, defecating on the floor or feeling mm-hmm. haunted? Like, it's a, it's almost like, um, I'm surprised there hasn't been like the, a horror movie about a hoarder house. And maybe that's what motivated the hoarder in the first place is that eerie, that eeriness, right? That sense that they had to fill up some kind of menace yeah. in this like there's a great do you know the book um the weird and the eerie by mark fisher i did yeah and he's yeah. a great to, you know it's, eerie is like a very hard thing to put your finger on but i think he has a really good definition when he says the eerie is always an absence of presence or a presence of absence mm. in that you know if you come back to your apartment and you feel like someone was just there or even you feel like someone is there but they're not there right and you just like can't find them the, you know, it's an eerie feeling because you can't put your finger on why you feel that way. Whereas if you just actually found someone there, it might be scary, it might be dangerous, but it wouldn't be eerie, right? So there's something off about the balance between um, presence and absence, right? There's the absence of the presence that should be there. Or the same thing if you think about like Stonehenge or the pyramids, or there's some sense that like somebody made these things for some reason, you know, they didn't just happen to be this way, but we really don't know why. And like, we really can't understand it. And then the opposite kind of eerie is if you describe like a seagull or a crow as having an eerie cry, right? And it's eerie because it sounds almost human, right? Or it almost sounds like it's telling you something, even though you know that it's not. And and in that case, it's the opposite problem, but the same feeling that it's not as absent as it should be, right? Like a you know mouse or something doesn't have an eerie sound, right? It just doesn't sound human at all. Whereas like that seagull there's some presence there that shouldn't be there. Yeah, I think that, that that's absolutely right. And that kind of like dance between the presence and absence, that kind of antagonism between them, like really makes a lot of sense specifically with, with this house. Um, 
there's like a sense in which the outside was inside and the inside was out. Um, like, because, like I said, it was, was on the mountain. There was all kinds of like forest fires and, and stuff nearby. Like there was always that threat. And the, the fact it was in disrepair too, it felt like I always used to say like nature is winning with this house. <laughs> like it was hard to like keep up with all the weeds and it was hard to keep up with this. Like, like, like the, the day-to-day stuff, let alone like get rid of like the mess that, that was up there. Um, and yeah, yeah. It, and it, yeah, I think that that bringing in the, the weird and the eerie is really smart and, and presence and absence too. Cause I remember, like I said, it, it had, you could never be settled because you felt like at once too public and, and like too isolated too. And like, I remember one day we were actually going down for like the, the antibiotics weren't strong enough for the, the pneumonia that I had. And my wife was driving me down the driveway and I asked her, I was like, um, what do we want to do if like, cause we're supposed to be like caretaking this house. Um, and like, what do we do if like somebody does show up here? Like, what is our, what is our game plan? And we're kind of like, uh, improvising those scenarios. And I shit you not when we hit the gate at the bottom of, of the thing, by the way, the, the, it was, it was funny. It was a bungee corded gate, um, that used to be an automatic gate. So that's the kind of vibe of it. it it's it like had the kind of like, um, outward appearance of being sophisticated and new but like once you got a little closer you saw like the the security camera was actually fake and because a tree fell down it was up really high and now because the tree fell down it's like and it hit the tree that it was on now it's pointing upward as if like the security cameras uh supervising like uh, stellar's jays and seagulls and vultures and stuff instead <laughs> of so it was just it felt like almost like a like a, a, a like a, a uh, what do you call that like a, a house that's supposed to represent a house no, like a staged house kind of yeah exactly but at any rate so we were discussing uh what to do with an intruder and we finished that conversation talking about something else head down the driveway and then this kid is sprinting up the driveway like he's supposed to be there and we rolled down the window and he was on my wife's side so she's like hey what are you doing here this is uh so-and-so's house and he's like oh like, like he, he's got, uh, I'm supposed to pick up something here. And then we were kind of like, what? Like we kind of stopped him and he's like, don't worry, I know. And then named the owner of the house. So then we called the owner and it turned out he had left him a, like a, a bunch of weed for, for doing some repair on the house. But it, it did have, <laughs> and it didn't, didn't let us know. Um, so it de- definitely had that, that absence presence. And then like, how are you not affected by that guy just like running up uh, later on? We're just kind of always, waiting for somebody else to come running in and yeah yeah there's definitely um i think there can be not i think eerie and weird sometimes it it not only they're rarely on their own there's usually a dangerous element lurking somewhere else i think at least when it when it gets to my 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 marrow and freaks me out you know and one often cancels out the other right because the weird is like tangible, right? It's some presence, right? As soon as that kid starts running up the driveway, that's weird. Mm-hmm. And it dispels the eeriness, right? Like eeriness is a very delicate in-between feeling, right? Like it's not, you can never put your finger on it by definition, right? There's no like one thing that's eerie. It's always a situation. Whereas as soon as something materializes, you know, it's like the word made flesh, right? As soon as it becomes flesh, then it's weird. Right. Like, like yeah. the, you know, if somebody actually knocks on the door, that's a weird situation and maybe a scary or dangerous situation. But the eeriness is like the sense that someone's just behind the door 
even when you can't be sure if they are. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, that's a great distinction. That's exactly right. And it, it sucks like when they're all operative at once and you're kind of like uh, transitioning between this eerie feeling when you went to the kitchen and there's no lights and then you go downstairs and that's weird. There's a snake down here. It just is this constant like uh, fine line between the two constantly interplaying. I feel like I, I I can't tell if I want to tell this like fucking weird eerie story that happens to me or get into uh, a thread that just came to mind about casket flare. But um, I'll tell you the weird story though. This was like, it just reminds me of an eerie thing that happened to me during the, uh, during the pandemic. But one morning my, my girlfriend wakes up and she's like, fuck, I just had this terrible nightmare that uh, some of this guy came to the house and raped me. And I was like, golly like you know like i don't know what to say i was just like well that sounds like a terrible dream like i don't really know what to tell you but later on that day like she's just you know feeling unsettled you know this was like very early into the pandemic you know where it was like still felt really new and, and weird and there was like i would say like a weird kind of lethal coziness to it as well just you know watching movies all fucking day long and you know hanging out i was I remember drinking a lot but um anyway we're hanging out and somebody knocks on the door which is super weird because we live like in an apartment and if anybody comes to us they ring the doorbell downstairs you know they don't knock on the door unless it's like one of our neighbors but obviously like we weren't doing that at that time and she goes to the door and she's like holy shit there is a fucking guy outside the door that I don't recognize. And I was like, what? And I go to the peephole and I see like the uh, this like guy, like they really like bent over, like, you know, trench coat. And I was like, holy fuck, I guess it's going down. So I, I grab a knife out of the, uh, you know, a kitchen knife and I, I open the door and I'm like, can I help you? And um, this old man just says, I understand that there's a barber that lives in this house. And I haven't had a haircut in over three weeks. Could you cut my hair? And I was like, what? And, you know, my girlfriend's a hairstylist, but she would like does women's hair at a salon. And it was this old man that had like tracked us down that lives somewhere in the building because he wanted a haircut. And the guy was fucking bald. What the fuck? Isn't that funny? His name was Mr. So Fox. Funny. He actually died recently, but uh, yeah, totally <laughs> weird, eerie story. <laughs> but to get back to your book, you know, you you said something earlier that uh, I feel like that we didn't talk about. That was kind of the main thing that popped out to me about it. You know, you said that you were really depressed when you wrote it, and there is something very haunting in the isolation that I felt reading the book. And there's like a real sense of sadness to it. That's not obvious. And, you know, you mentioned like wanting to thriving to reach some sort of community. And if I didn't know you and I had just picked up that book, it almost comes across as like a crazy person. You know what I mean? Like the crazy eeriest thing that I could imagine happening at one of those hotels is not like somebody shooting up or shooting a porn or beating their wife or you know like any kind of deviant act the the creepiest thing i could imagine is walking by a window and seeing a, a man with a bluetooth on with like an altar with a bunch of garbage in there you know items from the street trying to communicate with people 
that aren't there in this hotel. And I, I'm just curious, like when you were writing it, was that apparent to you? Because like, because there's a genre element to it, it brings this sense of like theater and fun to it. But also like when I read it at face value, which was a little bit tough because I know you, but if I didn't, uh, I found that part to be really, um, that almost became the most intense part to me. Well, thank you. That, that I think that that sounds like you had a good experience with the book or, or at least a, 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 had some good, good emotions came out for you. Um, well, it's an emotion that never, you know, I've seen lots of films about seances and they generally don't really like evoke too much from me because I know it's like a, I know the story, you know, I know like what they're trying to do, but the idea of like bringing that down to a, the hotel close to the airport in that like empty part of town looking essentially for contact with other people is a, it's a really like um, kind of chilling image. That's it's, it's really cool, but it, it definitely, I guess like, that's not the first thing that jumped out at me, but just because there's such an overload of what's on the page and what's in the book. Were you in that space when you were, when you were doing it? And was that something that like occurred to you? I know we briefly talked about it, but that like it, you were seeking out a, a strange place while you were there, you were potentially maybe the strangest person there. And everybody else <laughs> to was put it, <laughs> to, yeah. add, to add like a ghost sale, element, it's like, how would you have felt if you had, you know, been a maintenance person, let's say, and opened that door and seen yourself in there, right? Like, what would your first emotion have been? I would have shut that door and run away. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that. Yeah, um, I have no like. I think a lot of my other like like my other creative endeavors, I always try to like imagine what like experiencing it from an audience's perspective um, what would i want to see what would i want to read um but with this one like it, it just it's too it's too close i don't know i have no like bird's eye view on it it's just too it's too raw and i'm, I'm glad that that resonated for you because again it was this like in the moment like affirmation process like affirming the world yes this idea sure why not let's let's keep going with this um so I, I have no advantage and it really, it requires a reader to activate. Like it was for an audience. It's like, what would Kenneth Branagh say if he, I guess he could watch himself performing as Hamlet and criticize himself like in, in the film version of Hamlet. Um, I have no way to, to look at this book other than what the readers and the audience tell me that they've, they see and they experience. Um, and when we talk about that kind of depression, you know, I wonder if, you know, we go back to the idea of, of exorcism, like that, you know, that makes sense, right? Like the ghosts are there and you don't want them there, right? There's like too many, too many presences, right? There's too much in the house mm -hmm. and you want to declutter it, whether it's, you know, boxes of hoarding stuff or ghosts. But this other kind of invocation, like you talked about, I wonder if one way to think of it is like that type of depression is like really the feeling is that you've become the ghost, like you've lost touch with life or with, with other people or with reality. And you have to undergo a ritual to actually uh, like re and it's almost the opposite of an exorcism to not banish yourself, but to re invite yourself into the human community. I think that that's right. And it, it helps me 
see something that, that Paul just said, which is, yeah, I think the reason the image of what was going on in Casca Flair is so stark compared to maybe other media de de depicting uh, seances is seances are usually communal things. They kind of require a bunch of people sitting together, a Ouija board, multiple hands and uh, conversation and nervous chatter to to sort of activate the occult or, or like share something together that wasn't previously there or was there lately. Whereas with with uh, with this one and, and and sort of what what you're describing, David, um, this one this one perhaps um, perhaps the hands were all interior or the hands that were exterior went went inside and pulled material out. And may all my transgressions be washed and make me chaste and pure. May my light be here now, guiding me, protecting me. And may all my transgressions be washed and make me chaste and pure, protecting me. May my light be here now, guiding me.